This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Welcome to episode 67 of Podcast Royal. The Cambridges are coming to Boston, the Commonwealth Games are underway, and legal rulings about the royal family continue to make headlines. Plus, we've got a fantastic interview with Eloise Moran, author of the Lady Di Lookbook, What Diana Was Trying to Tell Us Through Her Clothes, all right here. Welcome back to episode 67. How are you, my friend? And what are you into this week? Hey, yeah, I'm doing good. Um, you know, we were just chatting before we started recording about how it's just been um, kind of a, a crazy week. There's been a lot going on and I have not even had a second to really put thought into what I've been into this week. And, um, you know, i when I share something like that, I like for it to be thoughtful and, and something that has really kind of um, impacted my week. So I'm going to let you talk about your week this time. Huh. You sure you're ready for that. So um, listeners, it has been a really difficult week for me and my family. Um, it's been, it's been a tough one. We lost an immediate family member to suicide. And I think maybe in, an, in another world, I would have balked at sharing the cause of death, but I'm, I'm not going to because I'm, first of all, not ashamed. And second of all, want to make awareness that it happens and, and it's painful and it's hurtful, but um, it's so many complex emotions at once. But I want to honor this loved one. He was, um, and I before I get emotional and wreck this entire episode he was an absolutely one in a million person and I will love him and remember him fondly forever and I would in in that in this and this is obviously not what I'm into but this is what I want to highlight during my time so I'd like to if I can just take a moment of silence for him here and ask for your prayers uh, candidly for my family. We are really struggling. So I'm just gonna give him a moment of silence that he deserves. It has been a rough week with no let up in sight. I beg of all of you to take care of yourselves, honor your mental health, and tell your family and friends that you love them every day because it sounds cliche at this point to say that you never know when it will be the last time, but sometimes you really never know when it will be the last time. So um, we honor you, we love you, we'll miss you, and thank you for allowing me this time to recognize you. Well, I, um, you know, certainly appreciate you sharing your heart, Rachel, and bringing awareness to that. And, you know, I, I knew about this before we started recording, of course, and, you know, my yeah. prayers are with you and your family. And, um, 
it's just really heartbreaking, even when it's someone that you don't know, you know, your heart breaks for um, the people that are impacted and your heart breaks for that individual. And um, so I, I'm just so sorry to, to hear about your news. And, um, you know, you, you guys are, of course, in my prayers. Yeah, thank you. And Jessica, I want to call you out. You know, this, this uh, we found out about this on Friday night, and it's Tuesday as we record this. And you have been so very there for me, offering to bring meals, offering to come over, offering to, I mean, you've just been fantastic. And I'll see you tomorrow in person on Wednesday, um, which I can't wait for. And I, I just want to call out your amazing friendship and, you know, just, I just encourage everyone to, when you ask the question, how are you at a really at the end of that sentence, because I think we've become so accustomed to just saying, I'm fine. You know, I'm good. I'm good. But, um, I'll be honest with you and say that with this family member, I missed this. I had no idea. So, um, you know, I'm not going to blame myself, but I am going to say that I wish I had maybe probed a little bit more. So mm. at the risk of this podcast, good thing we've got a really lighthearted, fun interview <laughs> because that we're going to turn, we're going to turn the ship around, but I, I, I can't put anything that I'm into in that spot over recognizing what the, the tragedy that just happened in my family. So that being said, I said what I needed to say. So we're going to 180 pivot and we're going to talk about fashion. So what is your fashion pick of the week? Yeah, you know, I um, I wasn't really sure what my fashion pick of the week was going to be either. Um, and I actually, so there was some great fashion this week and I feel like I do tend to default to some of my favorite royals over and over again. So I've been trying to switch it up the past few weeks and do something different. And I just came across this photo on my phone before we started recording. And so um, in an effort to highlight some different royals this week, I am going to call out Queen Letitia of Spain. So she um, attended, let's see, I'm looking at this article right now. She presented awards at the Atlantida Mallorca Film Festival. Um, I believe it was on Sunday. And she wore a black, uh, like satin slip dress. And it had kind of a high neckline. It was cut in on her shoulder. So sleeveless. And let me tell you, she is in the gym doing some arm workouts because she yeah, has she is awesome, fit. Yeah, awesome muscle definition there. A great tan. Um, you know, she's got her hair down. She's got, it looks like they might, might be like small diamond hoop earrings. Um, and it's just, a, it's a simple black satin slip dress. Um, but you know, sometimes those classic looks are really the best. I believe her specific dress is from and other stories and it's sold out. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can find of course, tons of black slip dresses online. So, um, just a good, you know, classic can't go wrong look. And that's what I'm going with this week. Well, we know and other stories because Kate wears them sometimes. So that's a familiar brand. Yeah, um, I like speaking of Kate, I liked her um, nautical look. She was sailing with Team Great Britain over the weekend. And I loved her white shorts and just how she played the nautical theme. Up. So, so I did too. And that, that was out. definitely 
a runner up for me. And I thought about going with that one. And I was also just sitting there thinking about how amazing the summer weather must be over there where she is, because we could never get away with wearing a sweater in July yeah, it must have it must have here. cooled down significantly from the heat wave they were experiencing a couple of weeks ago. So I thought she looked great. Okay, so let's move into the Royal Rundown. So um, we debated a little bit about whether to talk about this. And so right off the, we're, okay, here we go. Right off the top, we, we want to say another congratulations to Pippa Middleton Matthews and her family whose third baby, which is a girl we have learned was named Rose. So, which is a beautiful name. So I personally think that, and you and I talked about this last week, that the choice of the name Rose is stirring up all kinds of resurgence of the Rose Hanbury alleged affair, including some new levels of disgusting rumors surrounding William. We want to let you listeners know that obviously we are aware of these. We are, our finger is on the pulse of this. Um, listeners, if you're following the Royals even a little bit and are on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or Alive, basically, you know what we're talking about here. We're not going to address the hashtag Prince of fill in the blank rumors here because we're, you know, I, I told you this last week. We're going to hearken back to our conversation with William's biographer, Robert Jobson. It was in episode 60. So you can go back and listen to the full interview for yourselves to see what we mean. But at one point in the interview, Robert says, had William actually cheated on Kate, whether with Rose or with whoever else is involved, Kate would never be able to look at William with that light in her eyes that she does. And Robert has seen that for himself in person. So I agree with that. I mean, if, Mm -hmm. if you were cheated on, or if your husband is doing these alleged things that William is doing, you're not, or at least me, that I'm just speaking for myself, I guess I couldn't smile at my husband with that pure innocent smile that she, that she gives him. And so we're going to stick to the facts here and not entertain those rumors today, even though We are unfortunately aware of them. How could we miss them? So if you are looking for salacious and likely untrue and unfounded gossip, try another show and we'll see you later. But yeah, I I have to say about that. I'm in agreement with you, Rachel. I don't think we would see her looking at him the way that she does. I mean, they feel happier than ever before. We're seeing them all with the kids. We're seeing them on vacation together. Um, I honestly think the name Rose that Pippa chose had no relation at all um and you know i I think it's further proof that there's there's nothing going on there i agree you're not gonna let rumors um get in the way of you know i mean it could be like a cherished family name of you know either the middletons or um or pippa's husband's family i mean you know and, and i'm sure she told family what she was going to name the baby and I'm sure Kate loved it and had no problem with it at all so yeah um, let that be further proof that there is no there there you know what I mean mm-hmm. totally so, agree. there's that so we addressed it we're not unaware of it but we're not also not going there so well speaking of the Cambridges listeners might have a chance to see them in person before the end of the year if you are American like us so We have known for a while that the next Earthshot Prize will be held in the U.S. And Rachel and I have been taking guesses on where exactly in the U.S. the event will be hosted. 
listeners might remember last year's Earthshot Prize was held in their home base of London. And we were super excited to learn that this year they've chosen, drum roll, Boston. Yeah. So Rachel, you've been to Boston. It's on my list of places to visit. Um, But I thought this was a really interesting choice for this event. So, you know, to me, it feels like a great location to host the Royals. Um, even though neither of us guessed this one, I don't, I don't think when we were talking about it. I definitely did not. Um, I know I didn't either. So I think it's a good all-American city. You know, we've got a lot of the historic colonial architecture. We've got a pretty famous baseball team there. And it's only 20 minutes from Cambridge, Massachusetts. So (laughs) I don't know if that was a coincidence. Um, I will say I couldn't help but think of the Boston Tea Party when I heard this news. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah um, but there's some there's some obvious like revolutionary war ties there but that we'll, we'll look past that and there's actually another U.S. historical tie here that I thought was interesting so I was reading that Earthshot you know it's actually named after JFK's moonshot which was his 10-year plan um John F. Kennedy's 10-year plan to land on the moon and the JFK Library Foundation located in Boston will be one of the partners hosting the event. Um, and the day that they revealed Boston as their chosen location this year for Earthshot was actually the anniversary of the moon landing. So a mm. lot of reasons floating around here why Boston makes a really great location for this event. Um, on their visit, they will of course recognize the five winners of Earthshot Prize and they plan to highlight Boston for some of the work that they're doing to combat climate change. So really fun, exciting stuff going on. Yeah. Well, I think you nailed it. I think that the Moonshot connection is exactly why they chose Boston and um, Moonshot Earthshot. William has said before that he was inspired by um, JFK's Moonshot. And so just kind of all makes sense. And I hope we get some Cambridges in Cambridge I that can't know somebody's had to have thought of that right but and uh I don't know I mean Boston in December is pretty cold but I would uh be willing to make the trip if someone would pay me to write a story about it so just putting that out there in the universe but switching gears longtime royal followers will recognize the name Tiggy Leg Burke from the 1990s she was William and Harry's nanny then and a disturbing allegation about her, which we won't repeat here because it's been proven false, was apparently how BBC's Panorama and host Martin Bashir were able to secure that bombshell 1995 interview with Princess Diana that ultimately ended she and Charles' marriage for good. Of course, the couple had been separated since 1992 and finally divorced in 1996. So Tiggy Burke, who is now known as Alexandra Pettifer, she's been married and Tiggy was a, a nickname, um, and Alexandra is her is her given name. Received a substantial sum of money recently from the BBC over the false allegations and an apology, which she rightly deserves. Wow, yeah, um, that is that's wild. That that has been taken this long to come around and have that information out there. Yeah, nearly thirty years, twenty seven years later. So switching gears really quick again, here we go with our next story, Rachel. I am so exhausted hearing about 
Sussex court cases. I'm just going to admit that. Um, I feel like I feel like it's almost difficult to keep up with all the stuff that has been going on in court. Um, and I just wonder if there'll be a time when we don't have a legal battle going on. But we did have an update regarding Prince Harry and his security protection in the UK. So a little backstory in early 2020. I don't know if I'm saying this right. Ravik, is that how you say that? I think so. It's an acronym. So, it is, yes. It's the Committee for the Protection of Royals and Public Figures. Um, Ravik determined Harry should no longer have an automatic right to UK police security, following him stepping down from his public duties and moving outside of the UK. So this means that he could still get protection, but it would be more of like a case-by-case -case basis rather than an assumed right to security whenever he needed it or wanted it. So, you know, Harry's got his own U.S. security team, but his argument is that the U.S. security team doesn't have the same level of security intelligence in the U.K. and essentially can't act on a threat in the U.K. the same way that U.K. police are able to, since obviously it's not their country. Um, and for those reasons, you know, he wants an automatic right to security when he visits. Uh, so Ravik, they do occasionally meet and discuss who should qualify for this type of security if, you know, a change occurs in status. And basically, they believe he no longer meets their qualifications under his current status. They don't think that he should get his way because he's related to the queen, they don't feel like it works that way for other royals. So, you know, we've talked on the pod before about her, how Her Majesty does have other grandchildren who don't get this type of security. Long story short, um, he has been given an opportunity to challenge their decision and will continue to wait to hear more about the outcome in the coming months as to whether or not he will actually um, be given this right to security when he's in the UK. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I feel like um, and I know we're going to talk about this later in the show, but I feel like we have a possible <laughs> other lawsuit that could happen. I mean, I have no, no confirmation of this with the Tom Bauer book. I mean, uh, that, right. that could happen too. So I feel like the never ending legal battles continue, but there's multiple um, legal battles happening. We'll talk about um, more controversies later in the show, but yeah, I mean, I, I hope, I mean, look, he's given the opportunity to challenge it. Let's see what happens. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I'm not saying that he shouldn't challenge it. I just feel like, um, you know, we, we just have so much going on in the legal world with assessments lately. It's, um, it's a little bit hard to keep up with. Indeed. Well, let's talk about something lighthearted for a moment, shall we? It would not be a Cambridge kid birthday without a photo from mom, Kate, George's ninth birthday on July 22nd did not disappoint in that regard. We only got one photo, which is again, more than enough, but it was an adorable photo of George in which I think he looks so much like his dad, William at that age that it is mind blowing. So I'm wondering what you thought of George's photo this year. I totally agree. He does look like William and he looks very grown up. I mean, we've gotten to see him a few times recently um, during the Platinum Jubilee and at Wimbledon. And, you know, he just seems so, I don't know, just more mature lately. He's getting to go on these trips with his parents and, you know, these engagements. And um, it was a great picture. He looks really happy and um, looks like a little mini William. He does. 
So, all right, Rachel, speaking of cities, the Cambridges um, and the Royals really, I guess, are visiting. Um, I'm excited to say that the Royals are in Birmingham this week, but unfortunately <laughs> it is not Birmingham, Alabama. It is the other Birmingham across the pond in our sister country or cousin country or mother country or whatever <laughs> it's called. <laughs> They're in England and the weather looks to be a bit milder over there than the scorching temps we've had in the U.S. lately. Um, so I don't think that they're wishing they were in Birmingham, Alabama, but probably not Birmingham, <laughs> England is hosting the Commonwealth Games this year. And listeners, if you are wondering what exactly the Commonwealth Games are, think of it as sort of an Olympics event for countries in the Commonwealth. So it's held every four years. It's also known as the Friendly Games, which I think is kind of a cute name. And I believe the last one was held in 2018 on the Gold Coast of Australia, if I'm not mistaken. So I thought this was a fun little thing. Last October, ahead of this year's event, the Queen sent a baton from Buckingham Palace to travel all 72 countries in the Commonwealth with the final destination being in Birmingham. So during the opening ceremony, Prince Charles read the mess a message that Her Majesty had written and placed inside of this baton. I'm not going to read the whole message here, but I've got an excerpt that I'll share with you. So she wrote, over the years, the coming together of so many for the friendly games has created memorable shared experiences, established longstanding relationships, and even created some friendly rivalries. But above all, they remind us of our connection with one another wherever we may be in the world as part of the Commonwealth family of nations. So the Commonwealth Games date back to 1930 when it was called the British Empire Games. At the opening ceremony this year, of course, we saw Prince Charles and Camilla and Edward and Sophie, also known as the Earl and Countess of Wessex. And then we also saw a few more royals uh, this week. So William, Catherine, and Princess Charlotte made an appearance in Birmingham. And Charlotte got a little tour and was able to meet some of the athletes. And, you know, I really love this, Rachel, because it reminded me of Prince George's outing at Wimbledon. It seems like the Cambridges are, you know, they're trying to take the kids out to some cool, fun events this summer. And I don't know, expose them to some different cultural parts of the UK. And I don't know, maybe they're rewarding them for working hard during the school year. I don't know what they're doing. But um, I feel like a lot of times the kids get to accompany them to engagements that may be a little bit boring for kids. And they've got to mind their manners and, um, you know, not misbehave. And I think it's great to see William and Catherine getting the kids out at some of these more fun events and, and making it more enjoyable for them. So um, I really loved that. Absolutely. Yeah. I loved seeing Charlotte today and her little braids and her just little, she's just such a beautiful little girl. Yeah, absolutely. She had that really cute little black and white striped dress on and mm -hmm. she looked really, really happy and excited to be there. Absolutely. It's her first solo outing with her parents. So that was, we've seen George do solo outings. Um, I don't think we've seen Louie do solo outings yet, but this is Charlotte's first. And so it was great to see her. Can I just, can I just interject here for a second? I just want to point out the video of Charlotte and William on Instagram. Charlotte was in polka dots. I feel like I Kate 
<laughs> I noticed that too. I wasn't even going to say anything, but God love it. She was in freaking polka dots, but that's okay. She look, Charlotte looked, I mean, she looked, is it weird to call a seven-year-old stunningly beautiful, but she looked absolutely radiant. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. She did. I love that. Um, yeah, as you said, they were in a video, William and Charlotte wishing the Lionesses uh, soccer, soccer, football, whatever you want to call it, England's women's football team, good luck. Um, and then, of course, today with her parents at the Commonwealth Games, today's Tuesday, which I said is her first solo royal outing with William and Kate. So doing a 180 here from adorable to controversial. Here we go again with Charles and the donations that he is accepting for his charities. What is going on? Controversy continues to surround Prince Charles and charitable donations. This time it is reported he accepted a $1.2 million charity donation from Osama bin Laden's family. And this wasn't in the 1990s or pre 9-11. This was in 2013 and came from one of bin Laden's half-brothers. Despite objections from key advisors, the Prince of Wales accepted the donation to the Prince of Wales Charitable Fund. So this is but the latest. I feel like we talk about this, talk about Harry and Meghan in court. We talk about this all the time, Charles and his scandals surrounding his charitable foundations. This is but the latest in scandals surrounding Charles and his charities. What is going on here? Who Who is... in charge here and if it's Charles again I'm a little worried about the leadership at like 1.2 million dollars is is a great amount of money but I'm sorry if some someone from Osama bin Laden's family was even me giving trying to give me personally 1.2 million dollars I would turn it away because there's just Mm -hmm. too much baggage that comes along with that you know and so I don't know what's going on here I agree. It's a, got that icky feeling that goes along with it. And um, I I did see this headline and, you know, I was thinking the same thing. It, we keep this kind of stuff keeps coming up and it's like, I feel like, you know, they, they keep trying to like justify it or say, oh, you know, they didn't break any rules or whatever. And, you know, we're trying to say like, well, maybe it was okay, you know, but, but now this, I mean, I don't yeah. know. I don't see how you how you justify this one. And I, I haven't dug into the story too much yet, but it, it doesn't feel good. Um, no, to hear and, about that. no. And, and Charles's charities are not so cash strapped that $1.2 million from the bin Ladens, like that's well, not what's driving this. I mean, you know, what's behind accepting a donation like that? I, I don't know. I just, I mean, Again, like his charities have more than, I mean, so much money coming into it. We just talked about, I think it was a $3.1 million donation a couple of weeks ago on the, on this show. And so again, even if someone came to me personally, and I certainly don't have millions of dollars and said, here's a $1.2 million donation from the Bin Ladens just for you. I'd say you can take that right back. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I don't understand. And, and it's also a little troubling that according to the articles I've read, which I think the one that um, I read that said this was from people, which is a source that I trust, that key advisors said, don't take the money. It's too, it's again, there's too much baggage associated with this. And he did it anyway. So at least somebody is saying, don't do this, but he pressed on and that's a little troublesome too. 
Yeah, I wonder if we'll get more out of this story, if there'll be some digging into this or um, if more will come to light here, because I feel like there's a lot of questions being raised and I feel like people aren't going to let this one um, slide like maybe they did the others. Yeah, I don't know. Something is amiss. And again, it troubles me for his future leadership. For sure. So another big topic that's been circulating among royal watchers the past week is Tom Bauer's new book, Revenge, Meghan, Harry, and the War of the Windsors, um, which covers a lot of details on the Sussexes, especially Meghan Markle. So Tom Bauer is a writer and former former journalist with the BBC. Um, he's written several books, and most recently he has decided to dig into the drama of the royal family in the Sussexes. And he said in um, an interview recently that his decision to write this book came after the Oprah interview, which we all remember very well. So a lot is being talked about in this book from, you know, Megan before she knew Prince Harry to Prince Harry introducing her to his friends. And I'm not going to dig into the details of the book here because you can actually order it and read it yourself. Um, or you can find excerpts online um, from the book. And I actually have not had a chance to read it myself yet. So I'm kind of hesitant to comment until I do. Um, but I did want to mention it here. And I'm wondering, Rachel, have you read the book or do you have any thoughts on the book or or Tom Bauer as a uh, biographer or an, or an author. I don't know if he's a biographer. He's an author though. He's, he's a biographer. Yeah. So he's, he's a veteran biographer. He's pretty well-respected. Um, I've not read the book, but I feel like I have, because I feel like I've written umpteen stories for Marie Claire about ep- excerpts from the book. And there are many, um, they are explosive. The allegations are, I mean, it just, <laughs> It paints both of them, both of the Sussexes, in a very negative light, but in particular, Megan. And there's just really not a kind word to be said. I haven't read the book in totality. I am hearing that the Sussexes will not be commenting because twofold. Number one, Harry's own book, his memoirs, due out by the end of the year. Um, that has been confirmed that it will be here in time for the holiday market, so in time for Thanksgiving and um, Christmas and, and all of the holidays at the end of the year. And secondly, Omid Scobie is writing a new book. And I have a feeling that if I, if I were a betting woman, I would say that Omid's new book will likely refute a lot of the claims that were raised in Tom Bauer's book. But it is, I mean, it just, it's, it's just, it's, it's a smear campaign, to be honest with you. It's bad. Wow. So I've read a few of the excerpts myself, but um, I don't think I've read as much as you have. So um, I may, I may look into ordering that one. And um, I feel like, you know, I try to read a lot of the books that that come out, especially since we podcast on it, but this has been a busy summer and I haven't gotten around to this one yet. Well, and it just came out in the U S like a week ago. So you're not, you're not too far behind, but if you, if you all do, this is not a shameless plug to go click on my stories, but if you do want to see a lot of excerpts from Tom Bauer's book, then check out Marie Claire, because we've been, not just me, but my colleagues at Marie Claire have been covering it pretty extensively. And it's, um, you know, you have to go heavy on the allegedly's, the reportedly's, because uh, there's some really damning stuff in there. But um, I have not, again, I have not read it cover to cover, but I've read a lot of excerpts from it. So 
Um, I, ex I fully expect Harry's, well, I don't know if Harry's book will directly address the Tom Bauer stuff because I read that Harry's book was completed, like the interviews for it were completed at like the turn of the year. So like, you know, December into January time. But I definitely think that Omid's next book will cover some of what was said in Tom Bauer's book. So our final news item in the Royal Rundown this week, Her Majesty has arrived in her favorite spot in the world, Balmoral, for summer vacation. And she got a piece of good news while she was there. Speaking of royals in court, we're back in court with this. Following a legal challenge from The Guardian for her late husband, Philip's will to become public, it is official. Philip's will is going to remain secret due to what is being called exceptional circumstances. Now, in the UK, wills are usually public record after someone's death, but it has been practiced for over a century for the wills of royal family members to be sealed. And this is according to reporting from people. So on the matter of Philip, judges said, quote, it is true that the law applies equally to the royal family, but that does not mean that the law produces the same outcomes in all situations. These circumstances are, as we have said, exceptional. So it will remain sealed. Of course, rumors persist that people were paid in the will that might surprise you. We'll just leave it there, but um, we will never know. And I actually think that's a good thing. I think we've talked about this before that there are just some things that should be respected and that are not our business. And that I believe is one of them. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, well, let's go into segment three, which is our fantastic interview with Eloise Moran. She's so adorable, so much fun. Let's get into it. Today on the show, we have the dynamic Eloise Moran, whose book, The Lady Die Lookbook, what Diana was trying to tell us through her clothes is just about the most gorgeous book I own. It's out now and it's fantastic. So a little about her, you might know her as the creator of Lady Die Revenge Looks, which has been featured everywhere from The New Yorker to Elle to The Wall Street Journal. She is a London-born, LA-based fashion writer and is the very proud owner, I think this is so cool, of an original Virgin Atlantic sweatshirt, Princess Diana herself once wore. That gives me goosebumps. Eloise, welcome to the show and congratulations on this first book of yours. That's huge. Thank you so much and thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. Yes. So first off, um, I want to know how did you come up with this incredible idea for a book? Um, so I, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I have the Instagram account Lady Die Revenge Looks. And I started that account in 2018. And my intention at the time was just to document Princess Diana's best post-divorce revenge outfits, which was actually inspired by my own breakup of a marriage that I was going through at the very young age of 25. So um, that was how that started. And I think from there, I kind of, I mean, I was one of the people in my generation who kind of really was getting to know Diana as we have done over the last few years and um and I was just kind of like fascinated by her so I think naturally that progressed to writing a book about her um and it's kind of I mean it's more than it's much more than an extension of the Instagram um but it keeps the same kind of tone and humor as the Instagram account does it does yeah you can definitely see the through line between the Instagram and the book 
And it just all sounds very much like you, which I appreciate always. So you say that what Diana couldn't express verbally, she expressed through her clothes. This, of course, still continues today with current royals, thinking right now of Kate. Uh, this might be too much for one question, but mm -hmm. overall, what was Diana trying to tell us through her clothes? What were some of the messages she was trying to send? I think ultimately, because obviously that is a giant question and there are so many different outfits and um, each of them perhaps are kind of saying slightly different things. But I think ultimately, um, rather than kind of what she was trying to say through her clothes with the way she dressed, I think she was kind of really trying to communicate her feelings in each given moment, because if you think about it, the princess in many ways was kind of gagged. She wasn't able to speak to the public um, the way, you know, people who aren't a part of that family or the institution can. So I think you see her kind of trying, I think at the beginning, it's little cry, cries for help, which you can see obviously in the famous sheep sweatshirt by, yeah. uh, by Warm and Wonderful. And then later, I think it became kind of this all out revenge moment. Um, so you really do get this very intimate look at her life through her clothing. And she was someone who um, was very emotionally intelligent. I believe she was really creative. And I think there's such a link between emotional intelligence and understanding and um, understanding the power of clothes and how to manipulate them according to what you want to say. So I think she was just kind of a pro at that. Mm. I thought it was fascinating when I read in the book that for years, Diana never wore heels higher than two inches because she didn't want to be taller than Charles. And I actually have friends who do the same thing in their relationships. So I thought that was really interesting to learn about her. And um, I'm wondering what was the most surprising anecdote you learned about Diana while writing the book? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, to go to your point about the shoes, I love that because I think so many of us can relate to that where, you know, you might be dating someone and or you're meeting someone for the first time and you're like, God, are they are they going to be shorter than me? Do I need to, should I wear flats? <laughs> and I think it's this kind of thing that, you know what, just wear the pair of heels, who cares? If they're mm -hmm. going to be so emasculated by it, then you probably shouldn't be dating them. Um, but anyway, the, <laughs> the thing that I felt um, was the most surprising thing was that I really felt that she was quite in control and quite savvy from early on. And I think she, you know, the way she's portrayed in a lot of, um, you know, movie um, reenactments of her and um, any kind of biographies you read and there's lots of, oh, she was very weak. She was very fragile. But um, when I did my research of her and just started kind of putting the tapes together, watching the videos, I actually think she was someone who was incredibly strong and actually, you know, of course she had naivety at first, but it had to become very wise really quickly. And I think, you know, if I compare myself to where I was in my mid twenties and where Diana was in her mid twenties, I think she wasn't half as kind of fragile or weak as people portrayed her. And I think there's this really kind of damage, damaging, assumption that because she was suffering from eating disorders before an eating disorder because she was suffering from mental health problems that that made her weaker in some way or 
and I don't think it I don't think it did I think she was strong in spite of those things and I think that goes for a lot of people suffering from mental health problems Mm -hmm. just because you suffer from them doesn't make you a weak person yeah absolutely you write in the book princess or not she was just like us and I you know you just said something that made her very relatable and very much like a lot of us is that what fascinates you most about Diana is that she was so much like us yes absolutely because um I mean people ask me all the time especially since the books come out about which royal I'm writing about next and I'm actually not a royal writer um I think the thing about Diana that really struck me was this, her story as a woman, I found it to be so profound and so full circle and so entirely relatable. And um, I, you know, I think it, what's really interesting about her is she had this fascination with regular people and doing regular things. When she was dating Hasnat Khan, she liked to wash up his dishes. When she was, um, before she officially joined the royal family, she was living at Colhan Court with a, a few female roommates. And um, she'd pick up her friend's ironing and do his ironing for him. And then when she was in the public eye, she would love to zip around London, you know, kind of incognito and jump in black taxis, sometimes take the bus and hope she'd go unspotted. And she had this real fascination with just like the regular man on the street or women on the mm-hmm. street. And I think her fascination is kind of countered with our fascination of her, where we're like, God, she really was so normal. And if you hear her speaking, um, I mean, there's just something about her that like I could imagine myself having a conversation with her because she just seems Mm -hmm. so normal in inverted commas and actually one of um the things I found super interesting in my research was every single designer that I spoke to that had actually met her or encountered her in some way all said the same thing kind of without me even probing was that when you first talked to her within five minutes you felt like you'd known her your whole life she just had way of really making people had a way of making people feel really at ease and really comfortable and I think you know that is why we're so connected to her because she's just so human that's so well said you have an Instagram as you mentioned a minute ago um called Lady Die Revenge Looks and that predates your book so I want to go back to that and um ask you what made you decide to start the Instagram account covering these iconic looks um so as I mentioned earlier I um was going through a marriage breakup um when I was 25 so it was pretty it was a pretty bad time for me um I got married super young so I don't feel like I really had any real chance to kind of get to know myself I moved from London to New York at quite a young age and so I jumped into this new city this new relationship and when I came out of the other other side of that relationship and it was not a good relationship and I really didn't know who I was at all I didn't really I, I was working in fashion but I really didn't know which area I wanted to be in and I just felt really lost and I think when I speak to a lot of young women in their 20s that seems to be kind of the general vibe is you know if you know what you want to do in your mid-20s you're lucky you're one of the lucky ones Mm -hmm. so um I 
tried lots of different things, did a million different jobs, and then came across this documentary about Princess Diana called Diana in Her Own Words. And it's the one where it's narrated via her secret tapes that she recorded mm-hmm. um, for Andrew Morton to inform his biography. So she did it secretly at the time. And I was just so enchanted by her. And that's the moment really where I was like, wow, she's really relatable. I actually, even though I'm British, of course, I knew Diana. I didn't actually really know Diana. I didn't know her story. I just knew that she was this famous princess figure in the British royal family that was really loved. And um, as I kind of uncovered the story, I was like, God, this is so relatable. And then obviously the Charles and Camilla thing came up and I'm like, that is even more relatable. I definitely have had a Charles in my life. I've definitely had a Camilla in my life. And I think a lot of women have. And um, I, at the time, as I said, I've always worked in fashion. I come from a fashion family. My mum's a fashion designer. So I really grew up around it. And um, when I got out of my breakup, I just felt that clothes for me personally were this very soothing thing. And I, you know, kind of dressed a bit sexier. And I think the intention at the beginning is like, I don't know, when you're 25, you want your ex to see a picture of you on Instagram looking great, you know? And um, I kind of, it kind of occurred to me that once I watched this documentary and started doing more research and then uncovering, it really was uncovering the outfits first where I was like, whoa, it was kind of this big aha moment. And I realized that Diana definitely had her own revenge wardrobe. And, um, I actually searched it on Instagram. I was like, this has to already exist. Like revenge looks, Lady Di revenge looks, blah, blah, blah. And nothing came up and I was so shocked. And (laughs) and it's really hard to imagine kind of, this is like four years ago now, um, Instagram not really having any Diana content on there because at the time it didn't. So for me, it was like uncovering this treasure chest of being like, this is crazy. So I started the account, Lady Di Revenge Looks, inspired in a way by my own breakup. And um, and honestly, I had no intention of it going anywhere. I genuinely did it as a joke. And they were like, kind of, some of them were like slight digs at my own ex. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I have lots of friends who work in fashion in London. And one of my friends worked for another magazine and she did kind of, one article on it and I I swear to you from there it just blew up and it just kept growing and growing and growing then I got a book agent out of it who approached me so for anyone who thinks you know oh I shouldn't start that Instagram account it's silly or like you think Instagram isn't kind of a real thing it actually changed my life (laughs) truly yeah and I'm and you as of this moment have 118,000 followers so yeah it's blown up it's huge and we and I love it I mean it's just, we, I, Diana's, and we'll talk about this in a second, but Diana's like 1994 to 1997 looks are my favorite personally, Diana era. And yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if you were to break down a few top tips for revenge dressing, because let's say that some of our listeners are in that moment. They want to, they want to revenge dress right now. Yeah. For, first of all, what is revenge dressing and how do you pull it off? Okay, so anyone can pull it off because it's not, I think 
revenge dressing isn't a particular style it's a way of dressing that makes you feel good about yourself and kind of you know pushes your own boundaries a little bit or you know I know plenty of people luckily my ex wasn't like this but I know plenty of people who've been in relationships where they say oh my ex didn't like me wearing this or my ex didn't like me wearing that well sorry but fucking wear it (laughs) put that outfit on Put those shoes on. Oh, he felt insecure about you wearing high heels. Wear them. And I think that's the overall vibe. It's kind of, I, I joke that revenge dressing is, you know, to make make them feel sorry that they ever did whatever they did for you. Or it could even be like an old boss. Everyone's had a horrible boss at a job where, I don't know, maybe you lost your job and you leave and your confidence is shattered and you want to rebuild your confidence. Well, i get a nice new handbag, you know, get something that makes you feel good about yourself. And, you know, it's the expression, you've got to fake it till you make it. And I think that is what's helped me get through things. Clothing has this way to transform your personal attitude towards yourself. And, um, you know, I'm not saying go out if you're broke and buy like an expensive handbag. <laughs> but like if you do have a bit of money, treat yourself to something nice and don't feel guilty about it because it's those little things that they're like your outward kind of, it's an outward reflection of who you are to the world. And I think that kind of reflects back inwards and makes you feel good. At least that's how I feel about clothing. I'm very passionate about how clothing can make you feel about yourself. Yeah. I think we have all experienced retail therapy before, and I, I like your point that it's the attitude behind the clothing. Um, so that is, um, definitely something to think about with revenge dressing. (laughs) Diana wore the famous black revenge dress in 1994. And you write, that was a turning point for her style from then until her death in 1997. So can you explain what you mean by that? You've talked a little bit about the attitude behind the revenge dress, but um, what you mean by her um, turning point in her style? Well, I think that was the first time we had ever seen Diana step out in kind of a mini dress per se with, if you look, if you actually dissect the outfit and I obviously do it in the book, but if you break it down, you have this mini dress and off with an off the shoulder sweetheart neckline, very sexy. She's kind of got her strong stoic shoulders, which says so much in itself. Um, the It's a dress, it's black, black's an illegal color because it was for royals, you only wore it to a funeral or you know when you're in mourning. And it has this mini train behind it, which if you actually, it to me, it's kind of, it's like the, top slice of the sandwich if you compare it to her wedding dress which was a 25 foot long train to this dress which is kind of sleek minimal and it has a mini train it's almost kind of like this is my divorce dress this is my you know big fu dress Mm -hmm. and also the designer behind it's really important because she always wore British or for the most part Diana always wore British throughout the night unless she was kind of on on a tour and Occasionally, she'd wear a few foreign designers, but for the most part, it was really British designers. So to this event, she wore a really um, kind of slightly unknown Greek designer called Christina Stambolian, who really, you know, didn't have the largest presence. So she chose this small designer, not British, Greek. 
um, she wore a pair of Manolo Blahnik shoes, which Manolo Blahnik notoriously have been famous, you know, for producing. He produced the most sexy shoes in the world, along with Jimmy Choo. It's Manolo Blahnik, Jimmy Choo. Mm -hmm. She wore red nail polish. Again, royals don't wear red nail polish. Totally illegal mm -hmm. color because it was seen as vampy and sexy and kind of, I'm sure in the olden days, a bit like, you know, hoey <laughs> um, <laughs> I couldn't think of like a nicer way to put it but yeah that was I guess how they perceived it to be and but then she's wearing this um choker that you know if you're a fan of Diana and the royal family you recognize it because she wore it so much in the 80s and 90s and um it's her it's a, a pearl choker with um a diamond encrusted sapphire and it was actually gifted to her by her mother-in-law who she had a very contentious relationship with so um no not her mother-in-law the queen mother so um her grandmother-in-law exactly and um that is the only thing on her body including her haircut which is also new and like very sexy and had the sam mcknight effect her hairstylist that is the only thing she is wearing that is kind of almost like a relic of her past life and she's wearing it in my opinion as a badge of honor to say you know i'm still a part I'm still royal and I'm not going anywhere and you, you can't get rid of me that easily. And of course she wore it the same night, which most people know, but in case you don't, uh, uh -huh. she wore it the same night that um, a documentary aired on British television, which was kind of Prince Charles's moment to rebrand after he'd had terrible press. His these secret recordings were linked with Camilla Parker Bowles. That was super graphic and, you know, I don't know if you've had Just a beyond gross, honestly. Beyond gross, like no one wants to hear about him wanting to pull her tampon out with his. Teeth I don't even something. want to hear that from the man I'm in love with. Like that's yeah, not it's, to me it's at all. Kind of foul, and like definitely no one wants to hear it from them. No. Like I don't know what you're into, but no one wants <laughs> to hear it from them. Right, right. And um, so. This was his moment to sit down on TV with this veteran television presenter, Jonathan Dimbleby, and say, you know what, I'm going to come clean. Yes, I was. Yes, I did cheat on Diana, but only when the marriage had kind of irretrievably broken down. And she obviously knew because Diana was very calculated. She obviously knew that was coming out that night. And one of the biggest things that, you know, pissed him off the most was when she'd steal the newspaper headlines the next day. And this really was his moment. I, I think the documentary was about all of his like environmental endeavors. I'm sure his gardening, whatever, but like it was <laughs> so much more to the documentary, but of course that didn't matter. And after she stepped out wearing this dress and, that's it, when it was coined the revenge dress because it was so evident what she was doing and it worked. And people, I think from that moment, it was that go girl moment. I think every time you ever hear, you know, when you like, I know it's terrible, but when you sometimes hear in the press that someone has cheat, cheated on their like prominent or famous partner and it mm -hmm. almost makes you like the partner or the woman more because you're like, you're, it's like this girl power we all know what that feels like and you yep. almost want to come together and like protect that person and I think everyone kind of simultaneously had that with Diana and apparently Camilla was seen in the supermarket like a few days later and someone actually started pelting her with bread rolls oh wow wow yeah 
I don't know if I remember that anecdote. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I have so many thoughts, but um, she looked phenomenal. I mean, we can't deny that that look was a turning point. And, you know, listeners, if for whatever reason you don't know what look we're talking about, first of all, pick up the book, but also Google this and just Google Diana Revenstress, go to uh, the Instagram account and you'll see it. And it is, it's a, it's a knockout look. And, you know, I told you a moment ago that my favorite era in Diana fashion was right around that time. Maybe I would, yeah, I would say right around 1994, 1995 until the end of her life in 1997. I'm wondering what era in Diana fashion was your favorite because you cover not just 1994 to 1997 in the book, you, you cover the whole swath. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really go through like every single era and I pick out the best looks. Okay. So I have a few favorites. I really, really love her polo field outfits that she Mm -hmm. wore in the eighties. And it's kind of, I don't know if it's because I'm British. So I obviously grew up with some of like these trends and like the really cute sort of sweaters, like the country cottage core sweaters and all of Mm -hmm. that. Um, I really love those and I feel like she pulled them off, you know, kind of just really well. And I like the color and um, I loved her um, androgynous looks from the 80s too. I just think they're mm-hmm. so cool and actually, you know, kind of badass. I think in a way she was so tired of people dissecting her body and, you know, dissecting her outfits. There's it almost makes you wonder, did she put on the clothing of a man to kind of try and embody that power, the power mm. that men just kind of inherit at birth, you know, simply because of their, their anatomy is different. So I, I kind of thought about it from that perspective and just, I love an androgynous outfit. I just think they're really cool. And then um, obviously the nineties, I'd say the last two years of her life, I think she just really found herself as a woman and, and her style too. And I think that happens, you know, as you get a bit older, I think your twenties are for experimenting and figuring out what works and what you like. And then I definitely know that, I mean, I turned 30 this year and I definitely feel like I found, you know, my style now. And I know I can't imagine it changing that much over the next 10 years, but mm-hmm. where 10 years ago, it's like, oh my God, like my style's changed so much in that period. So um, I think by 1996, 1997, she just really developed this very international look and um, she loved Italian designers, American designers, and she just looked really current and fresh and you those are the pictures I look back at the most and say I would wear that and I actually wouldn't change anything about it which I think says a lot Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. so we've talked about your favorite era in Diana fashion and you've covered a lot of the um, general looks that you really like do you think it's possible for you to narrow down two or three specific outfits in the book that just really stand out to you um it's hard for me to do but yes um I really love Diana's white Versace mini dress her little little WD mm-hmm. <laughs> um that she wore I think it was in around 1996 and um you know it, it was just kind of why I think obviously just stands for women's liberation historically and she's 
you know, she's showing decolletage and she's showing thighs. She's, she's like bearing all and it's just super clean, super minimal. And, you know, it's the antithesis of her outfits in the early 80s. Um, and I think, you know, it's such a statement stepping out in the world's sexiest brand. Um, so I love that one for that reason. I really love this, like everyone, I love the sportswear looks. And there's one particular one where she's wearing an ankle length red coat and must be in the autumn or something in England. And some kind of chunky white sneakers, some Reebok socks, and just some really like super short cycling shorts, oversized sweatshirt and a scarf. And she just looks so fresh and current. And again, that's something I would actually wear in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... I think my final choice, let me think, is, you know what, I'm going to go with the, it's it's maybe boring, but I'm going to go with the revenge dress, the classic revenge dress, just because it's, it really is a moment that just says, and it defined an era for her and for Mm -hmm. like women everywhere, and there's something very powerful about this one dress that people still go back to time and time again. I don't disagree with that choice. I don't disagree with any of those choices. <laughs> I have. And by the way, I want to point out when um, you were talking about the androgynous looks, I love the way that you frame that because you said, I'm the girl that was supposed to be a boy because in her family, um, anybody that knows Diana's story, she had two older sisters. They were hoping for a boy, right? To carry on the family yeah. lineage. Of course she's born. Well, and, and I can't remember if her, if there was a, there either, I think there was a, a boy but he died. He passed away. Mm-hmm. And then there was Diana. And then of mm-hmm. course there was Charles and there was the boy, but I love how you tied that all in there. I just thought that was brilliant. I just wanted to point oh. that out, call that out, but Thanks. flash forward to the present. We see Kate all the time in particular channeling Diana's fashion so much, so much, even yeah. to, you know, this week even. So how, how intentional do you think this is? I think it's very intentional. Um, I mean, I think it's a way of showing respect, you know, and keeping her legacy alive. Obviously, William and Harry both, you know, love their mother a lot. And I think, you know, the princes have always said it's really important that their kids, you know, remember their grandmother. And I, I definitely think there's something very touching and sweet about, you know, Kate, Kate Middleton and Meghan Markle both, you know, paying tribute to her. Um, I also think both of them definitely have the help of stylists. So I think mm-hmm. the stylists probably do a lot of the research too. And that's at least my hunch. But um, yeah, no, I think it's a nice tribute and I think people appreciate it. So we've got one more question for you. I just have to say, I love this book. I'm actually flipping through it as we're talking right now. And there are so many um, photos of Princess Diana that I personally had not seen before um, I got the book. So I just want to know, what do you hope readers ultimately get out of this really beautiful book? Um, I hope, I hope they see, you know, what I really tried to do with this story is kind of tell Diana's story from a side that I would hope that she would want it to be told because I think there are so many kind of male interpretations of Diana's story I'm sure you know I mean of course um the movie Spencer it was directed by a man and it has a very kind of I felt like I had a really backwards approach to any kind of you know 
of the of what it meant to be a woman in that situation. So I really, I wasn't a fan of it. And um, I think all the, you know, renderings we have of Diana, they're very, I just, they just didn't feel fair. So what I really wanted to do was kind of get to know her and put that to paper and show, you know, some of her sense of humor, show, explain why she is still so inspiring to so many women and so many women who also weren't, necessarily like we're too young to really know her and um so I really hope people get kind of this intimate view into her life um, and see what a feminist she was and also just to kind of you know inspire you to be braver and bolder with your clothing choices and um just I think Diana's like a great guide for all of us to kind of put yourself first and use clothing to express yourself absolutely Oh, thank you so much for being here today. The Lady Die Lookbook, what Diana was trying to tell us through her clothes is out now. You'll know it from this like electric yellow and pink cover. It's perfect for your coffee table. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, she was a blast. And I, we, I feel like we say this about all of our guests. Maybe that's just because we bring really good guests on, but I could have talked to her for hours. She is, she's, she's fascinating. And the book is phenomenal. It is one of the most gorgeous books I own. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mentioned this in the interview with her, but there are a lot of photos in the book that I had not seen before. Um, so a really good reason to go get the book and flip through it if you want to see some maybe new photos of Princess Diana that you've not seen. And also like, honestly, it's just a really good book for some fashion inspiration. You know, yeah. we've seen a lot of styles from the 90s kind of making a comeback recently, I feel like. And so, you know, if you're looking to freshen up your wardrobe, you may get inspired by some of Princess Diana's looks. So yeah, it's um, a great book. Yeah, yeah, definitely go grab it. It's out now. Listeners, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Podcast Royal. Email us at hellopodcastroyal at gmail.com and please follow, rate, and review our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into episode 67 of Podcast Royal. Bye. Bye and check in on your loved ones. <laughs>